Well, good morning, Memorial Road. So, a few things as we get going this morning. One, I, I flip in the order a little bit. I'm going to preach first, and then we're going to go into communion after that. Uh, second thing I want to let you know about is this is the final week of the opening series for this school year called Reimagine. So we've talked about a lot of things the last few weeks. We've talked about how we can reimagine our response to difficult circumstances. Uh, we've talked a lot about relationships. How do we reimagine our friendships? Last week we talked about family, how we imagine that time at home. Uh, and then we'll do one more lesson this week, which I'll intro in just a minute. And then next week, starting a brand new series, which is leading us up to our Mission Sunday. Normally, uh, for those of you who are members, Mission Sunday happens in the summer, but because of everything that's gone on in 2020, we have moved that to the fall. If you're new with us, once a year we get together and, and we are, are very generous to our mission efforts in a big day we call Mission Sunday. So that'll be September 27th, and so a week from today I'll start a series called Disruptive Witness, uh, which will lead us up to that day. A uh, third thing I want to let you know about is... At the end of our service today, we're going to have a, uh, an, an update as far as what services are looking like going forward. We've been in the parking lot for quite a, a while now, and uh, we said a few, actually months ago, we'd do this till the end of September, and so we have some more updates uh, on that, which we'll give you at the end of service. And then final thing I'll say before I launch into the message is, big thanks, a lot of you signed up for Pray With The Preacher, which is a program I... Uh, launched last week, and so I've really enjoyed those of you I've already got to meet with and pray with this past week, and a lot more of you have signed up for the next um, or for the foreseeable future. And so, if, if you're still wanting to spend some time with either me or myself and my lovely wife Mary, you're welcome to click on one of the links that went out in um, several of the emails this this past week. So I want to give you a, a line from a really old song and see if you can finish the line. It's my party, and I'll. Very good. Uh, most of the people, I don't know, the, probably the older people got that. Younger people, you might be like, what's what in the world he's talking about? It's a song written in the 60s. I remember hearing this song when I was a kid. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. And I always thought, that's a weird song. Because if you're at a party, you're supposed to be happy. But if you're crying, you're sad. And those two things don't really go together. And that, recently, I actually looked up the story behind the song and why, why that interesting lyric is in there. So, the songwriter has a memory when she's 16 years old, she has a birthday party. Her parents invite her grandparents. She doesn't want her grandparents to come because she's a bratty teenager. And so her dad says, no, they're coming anyway. Grandparents show up at the party and this girl gets really upset and she starts crying and the dad pulls her aside and says, honey, honey, it's your birthday. Please, please don't cry. Why would you do this on your birthday? And she says the famous line, it's my party. I'm going to cry if I want to. It's a really interesting line. Because it, it, it points at this truth that it's actually possible to be somewhat happy and somewhat sad at, at the same time. Like, we normally think of happiness and sadness as opposites, but I've often found that happiness and sadness just underneath the surface are kind of like friends, kind of like the movie Inside Out. They can coexist. And if there was ever a year for the presence of sadness... To be just under the surface, it is, it is this year. Here's a stat that completely blew me away. Uh, U.S. Census Bureau, in the year 2020, they report that one-third of adults in the United States of America are suffering from clinical depression 
or anxiety. That's a lot of people. Millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans are, are, are suffering with depression and anxiety. And if those numbers hold true, that means a lot of us are suffering from a depression and anxiety. So the sermon topic today is, is reimagine joy. What does that even look like? How many of you have ever been to a 3D movie where you or put on the glasses? Anybody? Most, many, many of us have done that. I always find those interesting because when you put on those glasses and then the images pop off the screen in your head, you actually think you can grab them because they feel like they're right in front of you. And every time I do a 3D movie, I always just, I know it's not there, but I try to grab it anyway because it feels so front and center. It's kind of like joy. We want it, but every time we grab for it, it's elusive. It, it just slips between our fingers, and we feel like we don't have it. I'm sure you've had stories in your life where you wanted this one thing, and you just thought, if I just get this one thing, it might be a really big thing, could be a small thing, but if I can just get this thing, whether that's an actual something you buy, an object, a household item, a house, a, a car, a piece of clothing, Maybe it's not something you buy, but maybe it's something just if I can get out of this toxic job situation, if I can just get to the end of this semester, and if I can finally get done with this schoolwork, then I'll find that joy. But you know how this goes. <laughs> you get the thing you want, you get through the relationship, you get through the season, you get through the schoolwork, and then maybe you're happy for a day or two, and then it just, it fades. Joy is just really hard to find. I'll confess to you, I'm generally, I'm a pretty happy person. I like to laugh. I like to have fun. I'm always doing stuff. I, I am generally a happy person. I smile a lot. But I got to be honest, in the last few months, I've had days where I am just sad. And I can't like pinpoint it like, well, such and such happened. That's why I'm down. I just am. It's just this, it's this downer uh, sense of reality, this downer mood that I find myself in. And, and maybe some of you can relate to that as well. You don't really have a reason for why you might feel down on a certain day. You just, you just do. Uh, maybe you've had that experience of you don't really have anything to look forward to because maybe a lot of the things in your life have been canceled, and so you just, you just feel down. Um, maybe some of you have found yourself crying, and, and you don't even know why. There's no reason for it. Well, a lot of us are in the same boat there. We're, we're searching for something. And, and, and let me tell you some of the good news, at least from my perspective about the Christian faith. I think the Christian worldview was built for times like this. I think the Christian worldview is built for times of sadness, largely because Jesus, our leader, he was not afraid of sadness. Like he didn't run away from it. He didn't ignore it. He didn't overreact to it. He just embraced it for what it was, and then he walked through it. In fact, if, if I could rewind my life to the beginning of 2020 and someone were to tell me, hey, this is going to be a really horrible year and there's going to be a pandemic and the whole nation's going to blow up with racial unrest and a lot of people are going to lose their jobs, it's going to be a hard year. If someone had told me that in 2020 and then I got to choose my worldview, I would actually pick Christianity because Christianity was built for times like this. I mean, think for a minute about your spiritual DNA. When you think about all the people that have come before you in this great history of faith, your spiritual DNA includes poverty and persecution and rejection. And your spiritual ancestors, they were jailed, 
They were deported. They were flogged. They were hated. They were beaten. They were shipwrecked. They were killed. Like these are your spiritual ancestors. They lost parents. They lost children. Their homes were burned down. Their futures were destroyed. And yet somehow this faith, it got them through these times. So I'm telling you, I know it's, it's a hard season right now, but our faith was made for this. It was made for times like, like right now. So you have a great heritage. So how, how do we rediscover joy in, in our lives? I, I want to go to an Old Testament story. Last few weeks we've been with the story of Joseph, and we're going to stay in the Old Testament, different character. It's a really, really great story about Elijah. Several years ago I preached on this text. It's so relevant for, for what we're going through right now. So Elijah had a moment in his life where for all intensive purposes, he should have been full of joy. God had just done this absolutely stunning miracle in the life of Elijah. Elijah had gone toe-to-toe with 450 prophets of Baal, and God had decisively won the victory for Elijah. That There had been this amazing miracle where fire had come down from heaven and burned the sacrifice on this altar, and the whole world unequivocally knew in that moment There is one true God. His name is Yahweh. Baal is a false God. So it was this climactic victory for Israel and for God's people. It's the kind of victory that if it happened to you, this this gives you confidence for like months. Like this is such an amazing victory. Well, for Elijah, it lasted like a day. Then he gets scared because Jezebel's trying to kill him. And he runs away and he's hiding in a cave, extremely depressed. And the way that God deals with Elijah in this moment is is so powerful and it's so relevant for our lives right now. So here's here's what God does. This is 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. Elijah came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he would die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. So, So Elijah's clearly not himself. Maybe you can relate to this. You, you're just having one of those days where you're just not thinking straight. You're not yourself. You, you can't tell yourself all the reasons why, but you just don't feel like yourself. That, that's what Elijah's going through. And it's, it's so interesting what God does. Here's what happens next in the story. All at once, an angel touched Elijah and said, get up and eat. Now, I got to say here, this, this angel, I think he kind of gets the short end of the stick Like his friends get assignments like go shut the mouths of lion or go announce that Jesus is going to be born and this angel gets the job of making Elijah a sandwich. But I'm sure he has a good attitude. He does it anyway. He tells Elijah, get up and eat. Uh, Next verse, Elijah looks around and there by his head was some bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he laid down again. Now, this seems so inconsequential. But I would like to submit to you that this encounter between the angel and Elijah is an example of the profound wisdom of God. What does God give Elijah in this moment? Physical touch. Notice the angel touched Elijah. And food. Now, why would God do that? I think it's because God understands that human beings are physical beings. Sometimes as you and I navigate our issues and our problems, we can tend to forsake that which is most fundamental, that we are physical beings. We have bodies. 
sometimes it's easy for us when we have an issue or a problem to jump to other disciplines in life. Well, this must be a psychological problem, therefore I need pills. Well, this must be a spiritual problem, so I can just pray this away. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes we, we need to take medication. We need to go to doctors and counselors. And obviously, sometimes we need to, to pray with someone about it. But sometimes we need to eat a taco and take a nap because we're physical beings and we need to take care of our bodies. And so I have three questions for you today. First question is this. As you go through this year, are you taking care of your body? Scripture says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. What are you feeding your body? Are you getting enough rest? Are you exercising? Like I know on, the, on one level this doesn't seem like a huge deal, but you are a physical being. Are you taking care of your body? This is the wisdom of God. Here's the next part of the story. Elijah eats, gets up, actually travels for 40 days to Mount Horeb. Here's what Scripture says next. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down the altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Let me ask you this. Why does God ask Elijah that question? Like, why does God come up to Elijah and say, what are you doing here? Like, is this, you know, when you travel out of town, you see someone you're not expecting to see, and you're like, hey, what are you doing here? Is that what God is asking Elijah? Like, oh, this is surprising. I didn't expect you to be in this cave. What are you doing here, Elijah? No. God is not asking Elijah this question because God needs to know. God is asking Elijah this question because Elijah needs to talk. Like, Elijah needs to tell God what's going on. In fact, God doesn't just ask this question once in the story. He asks the question two different times. And see, the reason I think, again, I think this goes to the wisdom of God. Long before we had Freud and Erickson, Young, we have God. And God understands our deep human nature more than we do. God knows we're not just physical beings. We are emotional beings. You get sad. You get embarrassed. You get worried. You get scared. God gets that. He understands that because God's an emotional being. God gets angry. In the Old Testament, it says God is grieved. God is an emotional being, and we're made in his image. Therefore, we are emotional beings. And sometimes what we need is we need to deal with our emotional nature by engaging with the community. We need to actually tell people what's going on in our lives. And so here's the second question for you. Question number one is, are you taking care of your body? Question number two is this. Are you taking care of your emotional well-being through community? Like, do you have those people, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that you're actually honest with? Like, you really tell them what's going on. Now, some of you are in your head thinking, amen, Phil, this is right. Preach it, brother. We need to do these things. We got to be able to talk about this stuff. And others of you are like, get to point three. Like, I, I get this. Just move on. I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's weak. No. All right. You're saying that's weak. Elijah... He just won a decisive victory over 450 prophets of Baal. And he just survived 40 days in the wilderness. Like this dude is really, really tough. And yet God understands and Elijah understands that he's also an emotional being and he has to talk about what's going on in his life. You see, when we don't 
express what's going on internally, that's, that's, not, that's not a recipe for success. In fact, for some of us, our repression is a precursor to our depression. So when you hold it all in, you don't talk about it, and you just kind of let it, let it simmer, that's part of the reason that some of us end up being really, really sad. It's because we don't have anybody to share what's really going on internally with. Here's the third thing that happens in the story. God says, Elijah, I want you to go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord because I am about to pass by. So again, let's just pause and let's marvel at the wisdom of God. First, it, God takes care of Elijah's physical needs. He, there's physical touch. There's food. There's water. And then God listens to Elijah and takes care of his emotional needs. And then in the climax of this story, God says, I, I think you need to encounter my presence. And so here's the third question for you. Question one, are you taking care of your body? Question two, are you taking care of your emotional needs through community? Question three is, are you taking care of your own spirit? I love what Ecclesiastes says. The book says, God has put eternity into the hearts of men. Like You are a spiritual being. You are more than carbon. You are more than biology. You are more than just chemicals in the brain. As Scripture says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the very image of God. And one thing that's fascinating is that we, we tend to pay a lot of attention to the spiritual nature of human beings at the beginning and the end of life. So when you hold a baby... You, you are very aware that this is, this is not just a, a baby. There is something divine about this beautiful person that I am holding. You get this sense that this beautiful baby came from the mind of God. We, we are very aware of this spiritual dimension of life when we hold a baby. And the same thing at the end of life when we hold the hands of people as they pass away. We're very aware that this person's more than a body. There's a personhood there. There's a being. There's a soul. There's a, there's a spirit there. And even after these people pass away, we, this is why sometimes we can still sense the presence of this person because they're not just a body. And so, and so what I'm putting to you this morning is that if we can pay attention to this spiritual part of our life at the beginning and the end, why wouldn't we pay attention to it in the middle? Like I'm convinced that you will never be satisfied in life until you learn to care for this deep spiritual part of who you are. You're not just a body. You have this deep spiritual nature. C.S. Lewis said this, There are no ordinary people. You will never talk to a mere mortal. And so again, this third question is, are you taking care of your, your spirit? There's a book sitting on my shelf in my office, and I love the title. The title of the book is this, God is Closer Than You Think. See, I think one of the problems that many of us have in this age of instant gratification and immediate results, quick fixes, is that we're always looking for God in the spectacular when much of the time God actually shows up in the ordinary. In fact, this, that's exactly what happens in this story. God invites Elijah out onto this mountain and then these three huge, spectacular things happen. There's a big earthquake. Then there's a huge fire. Then there's this massive wind. But God is not in any of them. He's not in the earthquake, not in the fire, not in the wind. And if you know the story, 
the place God actually shows up is in the gentle whisper. And that word in the Hebrew is really difficult to translate. In fact, the New Revised Standard Version really gets at what this is. The New Revised Standard Version says it's the sheer sound of silence. That's where God shows up. Which is amazing because the very thing that many of us are afraid of, which is sitting quiet in the presence of God, we don't like that. We, we always want noise. But quiet, the very thing that many of us are afraid of, is exactly where God decides to make himself known to Elijah. And I, st- I think the power of silence is, is where God, for many of us, will show up if we will give him that kind of space. So backing out, again, big picture of the story here. Let's marvel at the wisdom of God. This is a story about a tired man who comes into the presence of the divine God who takes care of his needs, physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. Yeah, I think that when we reduce ourselves to one dimension, what we end up doing is, is we short-circuit the beauty of our complexity. Again, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, what does any of this have to do with joy? This, I think the road to joy is is this, to steward the fundamental gift which God has given you, which is actually yourself. So if you want to go down the road to joy, at least the place to begin is with self-care. Now, I know there's some pushback to that. Well, that sounds really selfish, Phil. This is a whole sermon about just taking care of yourself. That's extremely selfish. And really, the Christian faith is about thinking about other people. I, I get that, but I would, I would argue back and say self-care is not selfish because self-care is, is actually stewarding this fundamental gift that God gave you, which is actually you. And that's exactly what the world needs, the best version of you. You know what your friends need? You know what your family needs? You know what the person sitting next to you in school needs? You know what your coworker needs? They need the best version of you. And so if you spend your whole life just not really taking care of yourself, then you're giving other people these reduced versions of yourself. You're giving them the grumpy version of yourself. You're you're giving them the irritated, the tired, the malnourished version of yourself. The world needs the best you. And so self-care is not selfish at all. In fact, you can see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus, at his worst moment in his life, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in despair. He's sweating teardrops of blood. He is in agony. It's not the best version of himself. What does he do? Goes off, prays. He has this amazing experience with his father. And when he comes out of that prayer time, what does he do? He goes out and he saves the world. As Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus, he goes off, he has this encounter with God. He becomes this wonderful version of himself. And then he can go out, and for the joy set before him, he can endure the cross. See, the the great irony in in the gospel story is that the thing that was really, really painful to Jesus actually became the thing that was really, really joyful to Jesus because he took care of his own soul. By spending time with God, I'm going to say that again. The thing that was painful to Jesus became the thing that was joyful to Jesus because Jesus took care of his soul by spending time with God. 
So let me just boil all this down to just one or two sentences, then we'll transition to communion. Joy, ultimately, is not the product of a driven life. Joy is the byproduct of a cruciform life. I'll say it again. Joy, at the end of the day, it's not the product of a driven life. For all of you overachievers, you're not going to find joy. Joy is the byproduct of a cruciform life. So when you spend your life trying to find joy, you're not going to find it. But when you spend your life trying to model the life of Jesus, sacrificing yourself for others, what happens strangely, mysteriously, is that you actually find joy. Communion is a great representation of the physical and the, and the communal and the spiritual dimensions of life. Think about when we take the bread and the fruit of the vine. It's not metaphorical, like it's physical. We're putting the bread in our mouths. We're digesting it. We're putting the juice in our mouth. We're drinking it. There's a physicality to communion. But there's also this, this uh, sense of emotional well-being as we connect with other people. Nobody takes communion alone. Even for those of you sitting in your living rooms at home, you're not taking, you're not taking this alone. You're, you're taking this together with us in the parking lot. You're taking this with Christians in Mexico and Vienna and all over the world. So communion is physical, but it's also communal. It connects us to all these people in the world. And then communion is obviously very, very spiritual. I, I read a lot about the contemplative life and, and how we grow in our inner life. And one of the things that... I, that I read in, in quite a few different authors is this idea that as you mature in your faith and in your spiritual walk, what actually happens, you're not creating something inside that's not there to begin with, but you're recognizing the immensity of a presence that's already there. So you're not creating something, you're recognizing something as you grow in your spirituality. So when we take this, this, this bread and we take this fruit of the vine, what we're doing is we're opening up our hearts to realize the magnitude and the gravity and the immensity of the presence of Jesus that's actually living inside us. When we get really busy, we, we dwarf that presence and we don't realize it's there. But if we pause like Elijah did on the mountain and have these moments of silence, what happens is we are aware of the magnitude that dwells within our hearts. So we're, we're going to take the bread together. And I want you to think about one question while we, while we take this. As you think about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, here's the question I want you to think about. What part of you is most in need of the care of God? What part of you is most in need of the care of God? Is it your body? Is it your emotional well-being? Is it your spirit? Let's bow together and pray. Father, you are an amazing God, and we, we marvel at your wisdom. You take care of us as physical beings. You take care of us as emotional beings. You take care of us as spiritual beings. And now, as we take your body into our body, would you draw our minds back to the cross and help us to reflect on the wonder of the gospel? And Father, would you raise into our awareness the one part of our life that needs your loving care and attention? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to tell you the very end of the story of Elijah, which I think is maybe the most astonishing part of the story. Elijah's a broken, tired man. 
he encounters this divine presence of God, and you would think the story would end with Elijah simply resting in the comfort and peace of God. That's not how the story ends. In verse 20 of 1 Kings chapter 19, we read this simple word, go. God sends Elijah after this experience to go recruit leaders for God's kingdom. Elijah goes and recruits Elisha, Jehu, several others to keep carrying out God's plan for the world. And I think the point is so important here. God does not restore people to soothe them. God restores people to send them. See, emotional well-being is not the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Emotional well-being is a tool that God uses for effective mission. In other words, he brings you in in order to kick you out for his mission. In fact, you can see this on the road to Emmaus. Two guys are traveling down a the road. They meet Jesus. Jesus sits down at a table, and he breaks bread with them in identical language as previous episodes of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus has the Lord's Supper with these two guys who don't even know if Jesus has really risen from the dead. When they finally realize that Jesus has risen from the dead, Jesus disappears from their sight, and their response is not to sit there comfortable. They actually get up from the table, and they walk back to Jerusalem to proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So again, God doesn't just comfort us to soothe us, but to send us. So as we take the cup and as you think about the death and resurrection of Jesus, here's your question I want you to answer in your head in the next few minutes. How would God finish this sentence to you? Go blank. What would God say? Let's bow in prayer again. Father, we're thankful that you comfort us, but we're also aware that you send us, just like you sent Elijah, just like you sent these two people who encountered Jesus at the Lord's Supper. So, Father, right now, as we think about your death and resurrection, death and res resurrection of Jesus, I pray that you will put thoughts and actions into our minds that tell us what you want us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.